I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and nice to see you in 2024. A new year, and with it, of course, we will feast from a cornucopia of new big social issues that beg for charitable analysis. And today we're easing into the new year by simply finding the best model for society. No big deal. If you like what you hear today and want to help us on our mission to inject curiosity into difficult conversations, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Emil, we start our podcast by saying we seek the truth. And today, in our Principle of Charity personal challenge... I want to talk about two different ways of getting to the truth. The one is empirical and the other is theoretical. Empirical evidence is the evidence that we directly observe and get from our senses. This can be contrasted to philosophical or theoretical reasoning, which can be done without any direct observation of real life. This is the reasoning often used by philosophers or mathematicians. In Latin, this is called a priori reasoning. That is, reasoning prior to evidence or experience. In science, you have to often use both. That is, theoretical reasoning, which is essentially your idea or hypothesis, and then test that hypothesis in an experiment or by collecting data or evidence to see whether your idea or reasoning is true. So next time you believe you are articulating the truth, ask yourself whether you have at least sound reasoning or substantive empirical evidence. Emil, what's our topic today? Thanks, Lloyd. The topic today is libertarian versus indigenous ways. Which is the better model for society? Now, today we're contrasting two very different ways of seeing the world. First, we have libertarianism. And we'll focus on the version of this political philosophy that came about in the second half of the 20th century, usually associated with the centre-right. But in fact, it cuts across traditional left-right lines. It sees our individual liberty, our freedom, as the most important political value. It says that although we live together in society, we need a politics that ensures we are free to live the life we choose, that we can enter into whatever relationships with others we want, whether in our personal, social or economic lives, as long as we respect the other's liberty too, and that the best social relations emerge from this premise. It's a political philosophy that values civil liberties, competitive markets, private property and free speech. It sees government as a poor substitute for voluntary community. In fact, it dislikes government intervention, not just because governments may be corrupt or inefficient, but because of the much more fundamental concern that they, through the real threat of force that lies at the base of all laws, 
can coerce us to do what we may not want to do, whether it's handing over our hard-earned money through taxation, paying for public services we don't need or want, regulating us with laws that restrict our free trade, forcing us into a nanny state state of subservience with too many laws, forcing us to stay at home during pandemics or prohibiting us from having the sort of consensual sex we want. It's a view that recognises a base level of government need to ensure a proper running of the state, but is concerned that current governments have strayed way too far, treating us like chess pieces in their collectivist game. Libertarianism sits on the extreme, but still well within a general Western Enlightenment worldview, with other pillars like capitalism and free functioning markets, the scientific method, democracy and human rights. One could say that the purpose that sits behind this entire worldview is the flourishing of the individual. Now, I confess I was going to contrast libertarianism with communitarianism, but I was made aware of a fascinating Indigenous Australian thinker, Tyson Junker-Porter, and I fast realised that it would be much edgier and more enlightening to contrast libertarianism with an Indigenous perspective, as Indigenous thinking overlaps with some communitarian thinking but goes so much further. Indigenous Australian ways, as we'll refer to it, which echo many First Nations ways of seeing the world, as best as I understand them, see the individual as just one node in a hugely complex system of relationships that extend to the family, to community, to ancestors, to future generations, to animals, and to the land, which is also seen to be alive and sentient, and to the creation stories themselves. Sure, we have individual desires, and and we should honour our individuality, but we are held through our relationships and obligations to all those groups mentioned above, with an overarching sense of uh, custodianship for a story that started in creation and will continue long after we're gone. What's great about Tyson's book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Ways Can Save the World, is that he has taken the exciting step to apply the the Indigenous lens to our modern world, to reveal the limitations of our Western worldview and to see what sparks can fly that, you know, could hopefully help us all. There are some interesting crossovers between the two worldviews, such as a distrust of uh, centralised top-down systems of control and a belief in the power of emergent systems that come from the web of human interactions. But there's so much that's different, with nothing more glaring than the differing role of the individual. So let's dive into both these worldviews. Lloyd, tell us a little more about Tyson as well as our other great guests on the podcast today. Thanks, Emil. Tyson Junkaporte is an Aboriginal scholar. Tyson is also the founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University in Melbourne and author of Sand Talk. Tyson's work focuses on applying Indigenous methods of inquiry to resolve complex issues and explore global crises. He has a doctorate in education and a master's degree in educational leadership and administration. Emil, our other guest today is John Humphreys. John is the chief economist at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. He has worked previously as a policy analyst for the Australian Treasury. He has lectured in economics at universities across Australia and Asia and has done consulting projects for clients including the World Bank and ASEAN. He was the founder of the Australian Libertarian Society and the Libertarian Party as well as the Friedman Conference. John has run an education charity in Cambodia for many years for which he was awarded a knighthood in 2016. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Well, thank you, John and Tyson, for joining us on the podcast today. John, I'm going to start with you. You know, a lot of people have heard of libertarianism as a political philosophy, but they don't really know what it is. There's an awareness that focuses on the individual, 
you know, individual freedoms in particular. But could you just take us through what libertarianism means and what, what are the core values and beliefs of the of the political philosophy? I'll start with the, the core thing people have probably heard about libertarianism is the idea of respect of the dignity of the individual uh, mm. and uh, giving that individual the, the dignity to be able to try and carve out their own life. That's true. I don't know if that's the best way of actually getting to the nub of how libertarianism is different to, to other ideas. I think the core mm. of the difference comes down to the word voluntary. Uh, if I can, I'd, I'd like to step back a, a little bit. Sometimes it's uh, suggested, implied, assumed that the libertarian idea is to focus on the individualism writ large. Mm. Now, we do focus on the dignity of the individual, but humans are social animals. Everyone knows that. That's not an insight for anyone. So everybody understands that we live in a community, in a society. The core distinguishing element that we need to decide is what should be the nature or the structure of those societies. And the core libertarian answer is, we're not sure exactly what society should look like, but we think it should be voluntary. And when I say that, a lot of people go, oh yeah, of course, voluntary, I agree with that. That's not currently how most of our society is run at the moment. And the core thing to understand is that government is not voluntary, right? So the, mm. the government can tell you what to do, what not to do. They can prohibit things. They can mandate things. They can take your stuff. They can lock you in cages. If anyone else did that, it would be considered a crime. The government can do those involuntary actions often saying for the best of reasons, sure, we can get to that in a later, but it is involuntary. So the core of the libertarian idea is that a voluntary society, a voluntary community, will be a, a more robust and more flourishing community and one that will bring about greater human happiness. You know, a lot of people would say that the government represents the collective voluntary will of, of all of us, but you'd say there's a sort of oppression on minorities there that, you know, you can't outsource, in a way, our freedom to a collective because that sort of strips us of our of our dignity as individuals and our ability to make uh, our own decisions voluntarily. It's not something you could just agree to hand over, and and not agree to hand over. As most people, we born into a society which uh, we're sort of forced into this structure. To be generous to the argument for government, I would say that they they're arguing that the government should represent society. I mean, just technically as an observation of reality, the government isn't society. They are an organization uh, made up of people who work in that organization and make decisions on behalf of other people. So they're not literally society, but the best case for government is you'd say that they're supposed to be representing or helping or working for society. I get that. That's the argument for them. But just I inherently push back to the idea that they literally are society. I mean, that's just technically not true. And then the question comes to, all right, so they say that they want to act involuntarily to, to trample our inherent individual dignity for the best of reasons. Mm. And if you could show me that the government, by forcing us to do things, preventing us from doing things, taking our stuff, locking us away, actually made the world significantly better, I'm open to that. There's two ways of getting to libertarianism. There's the philosophically deontological approach that says all involuntary is bad. Yes. Uh, and there are some people who are deontological libertarians, and, and God bless them, that's not me. Uh, I, I come to this position, I think the morality matters, and voluntary is inherently more moral than involuntary. We understand that in every other part of our lives. But at the core of it, if it didn't work, it would be hard to get behind it. Mm. Uh, and so they, the, the libertarian argument, or at least my version of the libertarian argument, if you could show me the government significantly improved our lives... I'll start to say, all right, well, maybe we can tolerate some violence and some coercion brought into the system by the government. But I've got to say, from my reading of history and looking around the world, the track record is not great for the government actually improving the quality of our lives most of the time. There's always exceptions. I, I grant you that. There's always exceptions. And what are, some, what are some examples of where you think 
you know, and a traditional libertarian would feel like the government is too involved in our lives and are sort of trampling over our, our voluntary rights. Well, one of the, the, the initial cliche libertarian talking points uh, about how government involvement supposedly in our interest ends up backfiring is the war on drugs. So this is the, the government coming in and they are inherently restricting your freedom. You can't you know, smoke pot or take a line of coke or whatever it is. So that is restricting freedom. But then they say, but it's for the greater good. Right. This is being done to try and help society. I get that. That's always the argument, right? That is, even when it's not true, that is always what they say. So that's always the argument. But I'd say if you unpack that, the consequence of the war on drugs has uh, not really been to decrease the consumption of drugs. It's been to ensure that it is controlled by the black market. So it's to ensure that the quality of drugs is worse. It's to ensure that kids can always access it because your black market dealers are far less regulated and far less moral than a than the, the street shop corner. Uh, and it's to ensure that the, the, the prices are higher, but it's a fairly inelastic demand, so they still consume it. But the higher price means that uh, some people get addicted. Mm. And so you often see it associated not just with the crime of selling drugs, but with additional crime come from the fact that they're addicted to a more expensive product. It's also lower quality. Mm. I mean, you're taking, as you say, a utilitarian approach of like, you think libertarianism is net beneficial to society, whereas the traditional libertarian approach, as I understand it, is even if it may be beneficial to trample on our freedoms, it's just not right and you, and you can't do it. Tyson, the libertarianism, as, as I see it, is it's sort of quite a pure, even sort of simple political philosophy, which puts these freedoms as voluntary action, individual flourishing at the centre of a life well lived. But Indigenous Australian ways of thinking frame the place of the individual and, and the purpose of our lives, in fact, very differently, as I understand it, sees individuals embedded in relationship with kin and tribe, ancestors, animals and the land, which is very much alive and sentient and with the array of dreamings. So I'm sort of going to ask you the impossible and see if you could just cast the light for our listeners on on, on this way of seeing the world and the place of, of the individual in it. Oh, these are <laughs> holonic fractals. <laughs> Wheels within wheels of our, you know, balancing of individual and group sovereignties. Um, So, you know, I have to acknowledge first that I'm on Boonarong country, uh, the bottom of Australia, pretty damn close to Antarctica, but my homelands are right at the top of Australia and Cape York. Often in my community, you hear people say, nobody boss blame Nobody boss blame It is, It is absolutely enshrined in our law that nobody can boss anybody. Um, but at the same time, you are bound in such a, a socially dense net lo- network of relations with a thousand different protocols and avoidance measures and, you know, um, you know, kin relations that all have to be exactly right. Um, you are bound in, in relationships <laughs> in such like profound layers of obligation that you are regulated. Mm. There are self-regulating feedback loops in our law, in our culture, um, and it's not just culture; it's a biocultural um, mechanism, you know, so that the land itself and the the uh, complex systems of the landscape you're not standing on it or outside of it or intervening in it. You are of it. Mm. You are in that. So your kinship system is bound in totemic relation with the entire. Uh, natural system of your bioregion and everybody has different accountabilities to different places within that sacred site ceremony but also you know ecological care for different species and different waterways different lands uh, substrata in the soil you know right up into the sky you know we have care for all of these things our law is profound it's 
inscribed into the landscape in L-O-R-E law of stories, and it's but it's a big capital L, L-A-W, uh, is almost a substance in the landscape. And these are inalienable and ineffable permanent laws. Uh, you cannot break these laws. Most of our stories are about people who've gone the wrong way, who've transgressed, and then the inevitable uh, punishments that come from that. I, I was struck in your book how you talk about, you know, your wonderful book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. You you talk about emus and how they stand for that individualist urge that, that all yeah. humans have to put ourselves and our needs at the centre of our lives. And it seems, as you say, you know, many Dreamtime stories are there to model how we should res- restrain this emu drive, helping us to see our obligations to, to the peoples and, and relationships through, through which we're constituted and the land through which we live. You said in the book, all law-breaking comes from that first evil thought, that original sin of placing yourself above the land and above other people. But you sort of actually really nuanced about it and seemed to recognise the importance of the emu instinct. And in fact, without that, you get into a sort of hive mind uh, where everything becomes too regimented if you lose track of the individual. But how does one balance one's own personal desires with, with the call and obligation to people and land? Well, it's, it's like writing, writing a book. Yeah. You know, a publisher puts certain uh, structures and rules around what you're going to write. If people say, do whatever you want, just go for it, go nuts, it's bad writing. Mm-hmm. Like if I have no guide rails, it's bad writing. You know, if I have guide rails, I've got something to push against. And that makes a creative friction that brings me into relation with the audience and in relation to the laws of the land where that's going to be read. And I can push those laws there. There's supposed to be conflict. There's supposed to be dynamic uh, push-pulls and, and balance between the needs of the individual and the needs of the, of the group. Look, we, so we've had, you know, 65,000-plus years of this law. And, um, and then we had a century of complete libertarianism uh, with people coming from Europe. Because libertarianism is um, it's, it's a pump-and-dump scheme, you know, it, it's always how power um, and wealth uh, uses a bunch of frontline useful idiots craving living space. I think you say that a different way in German. Um, and they send them in first to, um, to die in, in the new landscape, you know, to build their log cabins and be these individuals carving out land for themselves and uh, for them to fight whoever is there on that land. Um, and then, you know, after a few decades or a century, they, they just come in and, um, and clean up the bones of those people and, then, and, and you know, the, the place is already settled and the original occupants are already removed. In terms of what's a libertarian example, I, th- I think the idea of Europeans showing up uh, in Australia as the primary libertarian example would be considered as unexpected by most libertarians. You know, my understanding of libertarianism, even liberalism more broadly, which puts the individual at the centre of our lives, you know, it's, it's, it seems like the narrative starts at the moment we're born and then clicks into gear when we become consenting adults, you know, able to be, enter into voluntary, as you say, agreements, and we can become the protagonists of our own narrative, um, using our agency free will to make the best decisions we can under the circumstances we've been dealt. But indigenous ways, similar to what is often called communitarianism in Western philosophy, suggests our story doesn't start with our birth. It sees us born thousands of pages or verses into a long story with a huge cast of characters, our family, kin, ancestors, the land, dream t- dreaming stories, etc. And from that perspective, we've got a duty to p- play our part in the grand narrative. 
and ensure that the grand narrative continues in good shape. So our freedom to to what Tyson was saying before, our freedom is sort of contextualised, our freedom emerges from within that web of interrelationships and obligations. And so from that perspective, we're sort of deluding ourselves into thinking our story starts with our little birth. How, how do you think about this challenge from Indigenous and I guess also communitarian ways of seeing our place in the world? What do we owe, if anything, all these other characters, the people, animals, land and future generations? Well, I think this critique is primarily a critique of a straw man. As I said at the beginning, uh-huh. they, I don't think the, the core of libertarianism or liberalism is that the individual is the centre of, of the story or of the, of the way you approach life. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we say that each individual deserves dignity. We think that's an important statement. Mm. Uh, but then going forward, we are social animals. No one has ever not understood that humans are social animals. This, the issue is which way to structure that society. And as I said before, the key libertarian answer is voluntarily. Notice that voluntarily implies there's something to be doing voluntarily. I mean, the libertarian argument is that voluntary community is hugely powerful, probably the most important sector. I mean, often political debates is between the, the government sector and the market sector, and that's an important debate, and I'm often in that debate. But the third sector, the, the non-government, non-profit sector, the community sector, is uh, arguably, and I think most people would probably accept, the, the most important one. But that works best when it's voluntary. This is the key libertarian argument. And, and this community is hugely important to who we are, and you define yourself very much by the structures you're in, the communities you're in, the neighbourhoods you're in, the groups you've joined, the, the religion you're in. All of those things are fundamental to your story, and you enter that story of an ongoing culture and you join it. But libertarians have never denied that. We've simply said the best way to go about building those community structures is voluntarily get the government the hell out of it. There's some similarities, both ways of seeing value the emergent nature of social organisation rather than top-down, which we'll get to. But, I mean, what I'm curious about, though, is is this focus on voluntary versus obligatory. Is there a role for obligation, for duty, I guess, for doing things that you don't want to do but you feel you're obliged to do because you sit in relationship with the community in which your, your, your story has emerged? Or from my perspective, it sounds like it's more of a, the primary aim is to live a flourishing individual life. And through that, you know, we live in societies. And so we're going to naturally want to be doing things with the people we live with. And so it's a individual out way of seeing our relations with others. The goal is to have a flourishing life, not a flourishing individual life. Again, we are social animals. I mean, nearly, you, you find it very rare a situation where someone has a flourishing life without that social interaction. This, this need to introduce the word individual every time trying to describe libertarianism, it seems to me a, a way to frame libertarianism that would only be done by non-libertarians and perhaps by people who are trying to frame libertarianism as the worst possible light so that it can be knocked out. So it's, it's nothing about... I mean, about... I've got to say on a lot of libertarian websites, including yours, there is this, there, there is a focus on individual dignity and individual freedoms. And indiv- I mean, it, it doesn't lean he- heavily into words like obligation, social relationships. I mean, I, I'm I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, I don't think the libertarian movement has been hugely helpful in trying <laughs> in trying to propagate the idea that it's a relationship-based uh, political philosophy. One second, you said, is there a role for obligation? Absolutely. Mm. But I mean, obligation mm. is a very different thing to coercion. Mm. Right? So with the point is, when you join a community, you have obligations. You join, you get benefits, you have obligations. That's the whole point. You're coming together in a social compact that improves everybody who voluntarily joins. And when you join, you should meet your obligations. I mean, that's that, that's a core part of actually community building. If you're not actually doing things for others, 
you're not actually really building that community. And there's and some evidence to show... that's different from coercion. You're, say, you're saying that's a... Yes, hugely. I mean, there's, you're taking on that responsibility. So if you voluntarily opt in to take a responsibility, that is very different than a politician and a bureaucrat walking into your house saying, you know, I've just decided you're doing this, you're not doing that. Wait, wait, wait a second. I, I didn't join a community that asked me to take on those obligations. Some random politician or bureaucrat decided that I'm taking on the obligations that they chose for me. Obligations are great. They are important. They are fundamental. I would say it is a life without voluntarily choosing to take on obligations is a life not well lived. You wouldn't see the government then as the broader community and the, ob- the and, and the sort of enforcer of the obligations created by a broader community. Well, as I said before, the government is not the community, just literally speaking. I understand some people, the argument for government is to say that they are hopefully acting on behalf of the community, hopefully they are reflecting the community. That would be the the most generous argument for government. But they are literally an organisation with people in the organisation. They are a group. They are just the only group in society that has been given the right to initiate violence and coercion. That's literally the definition of the government, by the way. I didn't Mm. define that. Mm. It was defined by people who support the government. That's Mm. literally what they are. The next point often in this discussion is, yes, the community is great, so government should help build it. But a community that is reliant on a government, well, is not going to have the equivalent level of virtuous feedback effects as a community that is actually bottom up and grounded in voluntarily joining of people who come together because they actually care for and understand each other. That makes sense. But John, libertarianism you know, wants to ensure we can make free decisions, enter into consensual voluntary agreements without government interference. That's usually that focus on the self versus the government. But when you think about most decisions we make, the outcomes don't just affect us or the person we're doing a deal with. You know, there there are externalities, you know, the effect on the community or the environment that leaks out despite our best intentions. So if we decide not to wear a seatbelt, we're essentially increasing healthcare costs of the society. If we if we want the right not to take a vaccine, we're asking society to bear the cost of a disease that probably will spread faster. If we legalise drugs or firearms, there's also a cost to society. It might be a benefit, uh, you know, but but there's a cost or benefit. And there's an externality. If we advocate for open borders, the right for people to move freely between countries, there's social financial implications for the countries that attract the immigrants. Now, one could argue there are benefits too, as you did about, you know, um, uh, drugs, and we could weigh them, but we really are then in utilitarian, not the traditional libertarian thinking. So within the framework of that, I guess, deontological libertarianism, how do you think about the externalities and the fact that our actions and our voluntary actions generally do have an effect on the community in which we live? Well, one thing, firstly, talking about externalities is inherently a consequentialist discussion. We're already in the world of consequentialism, not deontology, by the fact that we're talking about externalities. Secondly, just a a short pushback. I understand that some of the the, the loudest uh, libertarians maybe through the last 50 years, and the Ayn Rand-inspired libertarians are often very deontological. But i got to push back against the idea that most libertarians are. So some of the, the biggest names in libertarianism, the, the, the Freedmans, the Hayaks, if you go back into the 19th century, the, the, the Locks, the Mills, all of these people made consequentialist arguments. If libertarians didn't think libertarianism worked, 95% of them would stop being libertarian. Sure. So I don't think that deontology is the core of the argument. I do think it's important because it's often missed. I think there is an inherent moral virtue in voluntary as opposed to involuntary. We get that everywhere else in life. We really understand an important moral distinction between voluntary sex and involuntary sex, between you know mm. voluntarily taking something from your friend's house and involuntarily taking it from your friend's <laughs> house. We all understand that everywhere else there's a hugely important moral distinction. But what about when one's voluntary actions do leak out let's be in the world of utilitarianism, leak out into society. How do you find the line between, oh, look, I want to not wear a seatbelt, I want to not take a vaccine, 
and I have the right to do what I want, but there are effects on the society. So I know, understand libertarianism says, you know, you can do what you want, essentially, as long as it, it's consensual and you're not hurting other people, but everything hurts or benefits other people. I mean, it's very hard to imagine anything that, you know, to some of Tyson's points in his book, it's, you know, reduced to a system that doesn't affect another system that sort of is contained. The shorthand of don't hurt other people, I think it's a useful way to get people into the conversation. The, I think the, the more correct word, version is don't be uh, you know, non-consensual, involuntary towards other people. Because if you choose to voluntarily enter a boxing match, I don't think that's going to be banned under libertarianism. So, for instance, so there are going to be impacts on other people. And this is a part where I'll give you uh, that I think libertarians sometimes make a mistake. They argue that uh, their solution has benefits. And they'll often try to minimize or downplay or hide the fact that it has costs. Everything has benefits and costs. Everything has benefits and costs. And I grant you, there are going to be downsides to various libertarian solutions. My mm. argument is that when you take it all together on net, on net, a voluntary society is going to end up being able to solve more problems than having uh, an inordinate amount of trust in the inherent virtue of politicians, which I think that's second answer, which is basically what it comes down to, to say that libertarianism mm. is wrong, is to say that, no, no, I really trust politicians to run my life better than I can and to run community better than voluntary community groups can. And mm. the argument for libertarianism is not that people don't make mistakes. It's not that people don't sometimes hurt each other. It's that politicians are people too, so they make all the same mistakes, but now they have terrible incentives and an unholy amount of power so that they're able to use the, that, that power and the bad incentives to make their worst decisions even worse. Tyson. You know, when I was reading your book, I was, I was seeing the, the indigenous ways of seeing the world that you described, they, they evolved as great solutions to the indigenous way of life prior to co colonization that you described. You know, it was a life, as I understand it, relatively small communities living within the land and in relationship with the land, the animal life community. But one question I kept coming back to is how that way of seeing and knowing the world could realistically still be used, even if scaled up, to, to the hugely populist, global, multicultural, capitalist democracy so many of us live in today. Surely you can't just apply a system that worked for a particular way of life into a totally different social structure. But what elements of the indigenous ways of thinking do you think are helpful and can be scaled well to today's societies? And, you know, just what can't? You can't just transpose entire processes and protocols across mm. from, you know, something that's essentially a, a syndicated series of bioregional territories, you know, have different levels of law from the individual to the family, to the clan, to the local, to the regional, and then scaled right up to the continental for people mm. meeting in massive gatherings, you know, where distant groups will hold your language and your law and your culture for you in case there's a volcano or, a, mm. you know, an earthquake or a red tide or something. You know, this, this is a very interdependent system that prevents people from doing imperialisms, you know, which is really important. Mm. Now, that, that structure, it's not going to fit. It would be lovely, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not going to happen because, you know, with the Industrial Revolution you know, the world reorganized itself into nations, which is a relatively new model, you know, and this is talking about very big, very big nations and very big governments, of course, needed to make sure that those nations don't tear each other apart, which, you know, is a clunky model and it's certainly not working. I agree 100% with John. So the processes don't translate, but, you know, things like just the sequence certainly can. You, you don't start with individuals 
and then assume that the wisdom of crowds will produce laws that work and that that will just emerge because anybody who studied behavioral economics knows that that doesn't work. The powerful keep getting pissed off with how irrationally the marketplace behaves. It's because there's a whole heap of individuals out there pinging around, highly suggestible, pathological people who, um, you know, can be manipulated and driven towards stuff. And, you know, <laughs> it's pretty easy and it's even easier now post-Cambridge Analytica and uh, uh, Palantir, you know, Teal's thing. And here's where it gets into it. So our sequence would be the other way around. Our sequence mm. is, you know, that you have the law and the relational governance structures in place first, then individuals emerge. And they emerge in ways where, you know, things are limited. And we learnt this from the very first so that emu story, that's from Noongar country in Western Australia, and that was about a meeting <laughs> that happened, like an executive meeting uh, at the start of creation to figure out, you know, how how things would be governed. And the emu jumped up, started running around, I'm going to be the boss, I'm going to be the boss, and he kicked up a heap of dust. And so, um, you know, governance started in a bad way and everybody went in their separate directions and, you know, mm. it, it, that's a cautionary tale against starting out with emergent individuals uh, trying to, you know, um, establish emergent government governance models because it all went wrong. First man and first woman went the wrong way. The woman was picking up children's spirits and putting them in her hair and then they got lost out of the places where they were supposed to be. The man was walking around just eating the children uh, and eventually he had to have his head cut off. Yeah, everything went wrong. Everything was a mess. The sky was mm. coming up and down, crushing trees. Everything was a, a huge disaster. And that's, I believe, that's a kind of allegory for the first, you know, groups coming out that were trying to establish governance and find that law in the land. They did find it in the end. Most of our cautionary tales are about getting that sequence wrong. So, you know, yeah. that's one example. You can get that sequence right. Now, the problem, so with the emu story, if you do have individuals emerging before your governance models emerge, then it always tends towards autocracy, theocracy, uh, and, and fascism. You know, you end up with uh, people establishing in-groups and out-groups and, you know, and um, you're demonizing the out-groups who are marginalized. And then eventually they come to the fascist term where they start to paint the dominant in-group as uh, being somehow you know, oppressed by the marginal minorities um, and then you end up with bloodshed. There's less trust of individuals left to their own devices are not going to self-organise. I mean, you look at the internet yeah. and that trust that it was going to self-organise as individuals yeah. who are, you know, essentially entering into voluntary... Yeah, and, and, well, and demagogues, down. demagogues, demagogues and charismatic leaders will always emerge and they will want more than there is to be had. And they will gather people around them through, you know, weaponized logical fallacies that allow people to get in these, you know, self-reinforcing feedback loops of yeah. um, lie after lie after lie and stuff that sounds really reasonable. It always does on the surface, but they're saying more things quietly underneath. And when they're together, eventually they, they bring those out as jokes, you know, um, and then they then the jokes get serious and then it becomes acceptable once they've they've stretched that Overton window as far as it can bloody go. And, you know, next minute, Elon's doing anti-Semitism and saying, fuck you about it on, on X, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it goes really fast. It goes really fast from an emu 
or millions of years ago to like Elon in, in, in like the last 10 minutes. You know, one of the other models that seemed to come out this Indigenous way of seeing it really struck me was the the way knowledge is grounded in the subjective point of view um, of the individual based on where they sit in their very particular web of relationships and duties within family, mm. in animals, land, which has specific meanings for them. I actually read a, a book on Indigenous linguistics, which blew my mind. I remember studying Latin a bit at school and, you know, the complexities and the how verbs and nouns change depending on your relationship to them. We may, you know, mm. just it's incredibly complicated. But where Western science, as you say, takes truth and knowledge out of the subjective into an abstract objective realm, you know, trying to be true for all people at all time. Indigenous Australians, as I understand it, see knowledge contextually. And, and, and I love this idea. I found it challenging. But you're not saying truth is subjective, therefore there's no truth. But just for Indigenous knowledge, who you are and where you are within the web of social relations literally determines truth. And so mm. within that, you, you, you need different points of view. Um, you know, you, you want to understand where the other person sits. You know, you can't control the truth by appealing to some sort of objective uh, yep. thing that sits above that sort of controls all knowledge. But can you explain a little bit about about this a bit more and how, how might we apply this embodied subjective truth rather than just lack of truth to our ways of seeing society now? How do you apply your epistemology to inform your methodologies yeah. to um, alter your ontology? Mm. Um, and in our way, you can't do that. So your ontology, that's what's real. And um, you know, your axiology, that's what's right. Mm. And your epistemology, that's what's true. Mm. And epistemology can always be manipulated. What's true can always be, be manipulated, and, but it can never really affect what's real uh, except over deep time if you, if you continue with, uh, you know, a big lie and keep mapping that onto the real, it will change your landscape. But what do you mean truth can't affect what's real? The electrons, you know, and, and all the information, you know, that, that goes through these computers in these digital landscapes, that, that's truth, and truth can be anything. Truth can be a freaking lie. You know, mm. you can shift your subjective standpoint. And there's the danger in that if you're not grounded in an inalienable ontology that everybody shares. And that's what's happening in the world now. Is we're you could be misled by information in a sense. You know, you just so much information. There's a lot of circular logic. There's a lot of straw man stuff too, bros. And I don't know, there's, there's a lot of like, well, uh, Y follows X, you know, therefore X and Y is uh, connected. So, you know, in a lot of my reasoning there in, in, in that book that was written in an altered mental state, there's, um, there's a lot of leaps. And I think that, uh, you know, I, th I think there's a hell of a lot more to the relation between ontology and epistemology there that, um, that I dealt with in a very simplistic way. It reminds me of the moment, Tyson, of, of how through the, I guess, the internet and the incentives, you know, of the big internet companies that we've ended up living in different epistemological universes, that epistemology is stronger than it's ever been. There are so many different claims to truth, but because there's no agreement on what's important and what's real, in a sense, that sits underneath it, it's ungrounded. That's, that's because of how the internet started. You know, I mean, it did come out of a, a military tool and a whole heap of military research, um, but that tool was picked up, you know, like that European story of the... The, the giants fighting the gods on the battlefield and leaving the secret of steel then, and men picked it up and started making swords, you know, that European foundational myth. Um, it's kind of like that. 
you know, you had a whole heap of geeks and dare I say libertarians, but certainly individualistic people, but networking together, you know, and, and so their relations and their governance emerged from their interactions. And that was great. And they were like, wow, this is going to change the world. But your gates has emerged from that and slap IPRs on everybody's crowdsourced uh, <laughs> creations, you know, mm. and you end up with monopolies. Um, and then so the internet was completely unregulated and unfettered. And that allowed, you know, in the end, that corporatization of, of that as a resource with a whole heap of uh, user-generated content as free labor going on. And then, you know, managing to turn it around into a, a way of, um, you know, mining and extracting data from vulnerable people online, billions of people. This is where it goes if you don't start with your relational governance first and you don't have a solid structure in place to allow uh, reasonable autonomy and the maximum autonomy and dignity for every person. Yeah. That will not emerge out of a quantum soup on its own. The, the other thing I, I found structurally really, really interesting that you point to in the book is the difference between complex systems and I guess more reductionist systems and how indigenous ways emerge from observing, being on the land in your individual point of view, observing animals, plants, noticing, I guess, with a theory of mind, what would it be, what's it like for the ant? You have to understand the ant's point of view, but looking at the connections and not trying to not trying to categorize systems as distinct from each other keep something within the lab you know could you say a few words about the importance of complex systems and how indigenous ways seem to according to you have a a deeper appreciation of complexity rather than a sort of attempt to reduce and find the essence of things. This is what our governance models were based on, were these um, complex, dynamic, self-organizing biocultural systems that we're living in. If, if you're part of it, if you're a node within a complex, dynamic system, then you're constantly in an informatic relation with all the other nodes. And then mm. the greater than, you know, there's there's different groups of other, other nodes that... that um, you know, they come together and then interact with other groups of nodes. And then mm. then there's clusters of those within that. Now, big mm. continental governance structure was based on that. You know, it, it emerges from if you are, you know, part of your habitat as, as a human, as a mammal, if you're in that habitat and you're occupying your appropriate ecological niche, then you're receiving the, those informatic relations all the time. You're getting communications from the system as to what you should be doing. You know, and then you you can sit down, you know, and and verify that uh, in group sort of analysis. Now, all those different subjective views on it come together, and I guess the analogy I use is if a thousand people are lined up along a beach on a moonlit night, and they're all asked to say where the reflection of the moon is on the water. You know, some people are going to say it's over there by the rocks. Mm. Other people are going to say, "Are you mad? It's right out there in the middle." Mm. Um, but you all come together you know, in groups around a lot of different fires and you start discussing that and then there's exchanges between those groups, then collectively that thousand people will arrive at the correct conclusion, the correct ontological conclusion, the reality mm. that the moon is shining on every part of the ocean at once. It's, it's I mean, it, it ties in beautifully, and I'm sure Lloyd will get to this, to the principle of charity and the idea that understanding the viewpoints of different people just adds to our collective the collective truth about the world and that if, you, if you're stuck in 
in your view of where the moon sits over the water, then um, there's just no way of, of bringing a society together. John, you know, the, the implication behind libertarianism, as, as I see it, is that as, as long as we live our life lawfully, exchange goods consensually, then if we end up doing well in the, in the game of life, if we work hard, make money, have a career we enjoy, that there's a sense that we deserve our spoils, that they're not just ours, but, but using the lens of justice, there's a sense they're justly ours, as long as you know, you're not coercing others or stealing. But, but whether one believes in free will or not, there, there, there's a massive challenge to the idea that we deserve the spoils of our life. You know, there's genetics which tell us that much of, of what we are is determined by the genetic lottery, our upbringing, which we have little control over, our socioeconomic starting point, gender and race in a, in a world that still has biases, and our, our talents that are influenced by genetics. So, you know, and this is without all the random factors like, you know, bumping into an old friend who, who, who gives you a dream job or catching a hor- horrible disease. How, how do you think about desert and justice in a libertarian framework? Is, is it as simple as the message my kids were taught at a primary school that you get what you get and you don't get upset? And the rest is up to us. Look, I, I think there's two very different elements there. When you say talking about deserve and, and what's just, uh, I, I don't really have much to say on on what people deserve. I think that's a, a a really hard moral question to unpack to some degree. Look, to some degree, some people make smarter decisions and work harder, and so you yeah. could say they, they deserve more. But also, the, the involvement in luck in where you end up in life is mammoth, down to the point of I mean, f- what sort of family you're born into, what culture you're born yeah. into, what time in history yeah. you're born. IQ is uh, fairly well correlated with performance long term, but you didn't choose your IQ, mm. so that's just that is just dumb luck if you happen to be born smart. Yeah. Um, so there's so many parts there that really make the question of what you deserve uh, diabolically difficult to unpack. So I'm not even going to attempt it. But I still think there is an argument about what is uh, what is a just outcome. That's different to what you deserve. You might not deserve it. Yeah. But I would argue that uh, if th- there's going to be some sort of outcome. So if we're going to make any moral judgment, we could just say no moral judgment. But if we're going to make any moral judgment, I'd say if you look at the process, an outcome that is a consequence of you know, voluntary interaction between consenting adults is a more just outcome than an outcome that is a consequence from involuntary, which is the only option to voluntary. So you're saying regardless of you know, desert, which is a more complex question, you have to draw the lines of justice somewhere. And the, the cleanest, most effective, and probably, as you would say, most beneficial way to draw it for the better society is just around what we enter into voluntarily and where we're not conver- you know, coerced. Just looking at some of the practical repercussions, John, of, of libertarianism and the government, the government's imposition on our liberty, you know, what are some examples of what a libertarian might not want a government to do, but where, where a left-leaning liberal might be all too happy for the government to do? And, and I, you know, as I understand it, there is this distinction between libertarianism and liberalism. Liberalism, you know, the John Locke type tradition where, you know, there, there is a social contract that's entered into where you are able and happy to give away some of your freedoms, the, the you know, the freedom to exercise violence to a government, because, you know, that's the best way to organize society. Libertarianism would say there are certain freedoms you shouldn't give away. There's nothing unlibertarian about choosing to give up some power. It's about uh, choosing. But the issue is government, it, you're not choosing to. No. That's the one organization that you have to join without your choice. Uh, I'm yes, all for yes. people voluntarily joining governance structures, even if those governance structures end up looking exactly like a government, if they voluntarily opt into it. The social contract is a sort of a mythological voluntary... It's an analogy, right? It's not a real contract. It's an analogy. The idea of the social contract can be a, a useful concept, but it's an analogy. It's not a real contract, whereas the, the groups right. I voluntarily join, if I join a church, if I join my, my local uh, cricket club or whatever it is, 
I actually am voluntarily entering into that contract. It's not an analogy. It's a, it's a real uh, coming together of consenting adults. Mm. There is nothing unlibertarian about governance structures. Indeed, what libertarians mm. argue for is emergent governance structures, governance structures that emerge through voluntary interactions between consenting adults, joining groups, realizing that group is stupid, joining a different group, and so the rules of the groups evolving by seeing what works, what, uh, what people gravitate towards, what they run away from. That's a governance structure built up from the bottom without coercion, without involuntary mm. elements being added. And the word governance sounds similar, but it is very different to government. Mm. And we're not against governance. We're against government. And government is governance without choice. I mean, let's get into probably into some of the concrete social policies. Well, the governance structures are talking before about the, how would uh, your, your garbage be picked up and the roads be made. You would, in your oh. local communities, come together and you would either be the only house that didn't have your garbage picked up and didn't have a road going towards it, or you would come together in a voluntary community. If you didn't like it, you could move to the next voluntary community. So you'd have optionality, you'd have competitive governance, but you'd huh. still come together and maybe work out how you're going to increase security, maybe streetlights on that corner or on that corner. So that there's lots of ways to build up governance structures. Um, governance structures for how you create your, your schools. Instead of having a government in Canberra come down and just uh, tell us how that's going to work, you'd build it up locally. And it's not like parents are going to suddenly be uninterested in the education of their children. But they would come together in, in local groups and build up the structures that create schools. They'd be competitive schools because some people would want to do it differently. And you'd be able to see how they do it differently. You'd look and think, that school's failing. That school's doing great. I prefer the one that's doing great. As you go to it, the school that's failing would realize, I either have to change what I'm doing or I'm going to lose all my customers. So they have an incentive to improve. A third person looking at both these schools thinks I could do it better than both. If they're wrong, they'll fail. If they're right, they'll enter. Their people will gravitate towards them. So you've got this- And what happens if, if an individual goes, I, I don't agree with my- community that's come together. I don't agree with well, what. Depend on how that community group is structured. There are some groups that when you join them, you, you can't you can't uh, say, join your bank, take out a loan and say the next day, I don't want to be in my bank anymore, so I'm not going to repay my loan. There, there are some places where you enter into a contract that is going to have a time frame. But once that time frame's up, then you should be able to move. And there's, there's plenty of places you join that you could leave very quickly. I mean, you'd be able to leave your cricket club or your church quite quickly. Uh, so mm. if you disagree with the decisions your cricket club is making, quit. Either go to a yeah. different cricket club or stop playing cricket. There's lots of options in your life. And, and what about redistribution? Would a would a libertarian really be against the government? You know, essentially stealing one's hard earned money and redistributing it without your voluntary consent to you know people who might be unlucky and have ended up with a bad lot through no fault of their own. But essentially, it's still because it's involuntary. You haven't consented to your money being taken away from you. That it's sort of not just. Yeah, well, the starting assumption would be that voluntary is better than involuntary. You could be able to come to me with an argument showing that you're creating this much social good that it might be worth doing. I think you'll struggle because I think you'll find most of the systems that have effectively helped poor people haven't been government handouts. This is an yeah. interesting debate about the, the welfare debate isn't about whether to have it or not have it. It's about whether it should be fundamentally run by the community or politicians and bureaucrats. Mm. And I think there is uh, th this debate isn't had very much. It's a really interesting one. But I think if you unpack that, you'll find that community groups, Voluntary community groups have a much better track record at actually identifying what's wrong in someone's life and helping them find a solution. I agree the government, the great virtue of the government is they can give you a bigger check. But an anonymous person giving you a check and telling you to go away, I don't think is necessarily the best way to help people. So to directly answer your question, yes, libertarians are very skeptical of government welfare, but that's not because libertarians are skeptical of welfare. It's because like most things, it's a decision between should it be run by a politician or run organically by a local evolving community. Do you think individuals, if they weren't coerced by the government to hand over, you know, a, a good chunk of their, their pay, would they voluntarily hand it over in order to further the social good? 
Well, they already do. I mean, we've already got uh, an order of $20 billion being going to charity. And the evidence is that if the government did it less, the community would do it more. That evidence is pretty yeah. consistent all around the world through history. Is that right? I, I will grant you, and this is the true part of the pro-government argument, the government is able to tax more than you could guarantee people would give in charity. So they have yeah. just more horsepower, right? More dollars they can distribute. That is the great virtue of the government's welfare system. And I grant you that everything is a trade-off. It's pointless yeah. to claim one side has all the benefits and the other side has all the costs. They're virtue of the government approach to welfare is they can just get a lot more cash in the door. The virtue of the community system is, yes, there's a bit less cash. There's not zero. This is a ridiculous argument. There's, there's plenty. There's tens of billions. Um, but they would get less cash in the door, but they would be distributed locally by people who actually cared about the people they were helping. And I would argue that that actually has a much better track record at actually helping people. So this, it comes back to, do we just want to have a, a big, shiny policy that looks like it helps people? Or do we want to have a, a more quirky sounding policy that actually does help people? And we're constantly yeah. on the libertarian side of accused of not wanting to help people. I plead guilty to picking the policy that doesn't look like it's helping people. But that's because I'm more interested in actually helping them than just looking moral. There is another element to that. And that is there's plenty of psychological evidence that shows you get the benefit from the giving as well. Yeah. So the voluntary charity, the receiving voluntary charity is more meaningful because someone's chosen to give it to you. I think it's more effective. It's more just, as you were saying. But it also has the virtue of really connecting the giver into that community in a way that really matters in terms of building connections and community. And when we say, oh, don't worry about it just sit at home pay your tax proper government will hand it out for you we are stripping that community element there's not not a lot of joy in in in, in paying tax there's not a lot of uh, virtuous feeling the rich don't share their money there's there's a lot of there's billions that go to charity but these go into foundations so they don't have to pay tax and then they weaponize those foundations to you know do things like setting up rapacious ipr uh, laws that, you know, that basically deny, you know, life-saving care to developing and non-Western nations uh, through these uh, through these structures that they create, you know, and they make sure they never, ever have to pay taxes um, and that they can keep those component trees closed and infinitely growing for them. You know, there haven't been that many examples of commons that have had the structures which can be scaled yep. and you know, have ended up working, uh, yeah. aside from, I guess you'd say, the... the no, they always work. They worked, in, they worked in England until really recently. It wasn't until the Crown enclosed the commons. I mean, it didn't did work things in like The Queen owns every swan in England. You know, it wasn't until those top-down structures removed the, uh, the autonomy of the peasantry, which was quite strong if you look into it. You know, um, that was when the commons were enclosed. The co commons, the tragedy of the commons is a bit of a myth. You know, like in game theory, it seems like a, an inevitable conclusion. But it only is when you end up with hierarchies outside of the commons uh, deciding to come into extractive relation with those commons and to dominate them and therefore destroy Which is what them. communism, you'd say communism yeah. was. And so I think that's where the Aboriginal uh, law way and libertarianism um, overlap. There's a neat little Venn diagram there um, around, you know, commons and commoning and peasantry um, you know, and a relation with the land that can't be owned as capital by any single person, you know, to then, you know, speculate on into infinity in a derivatives market. If you don't have that, you're good.
Yes, well, I, I mean, there's 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 plenty of parts of uh, those sentences that I could disagree with, but just to have a bit of a love in here, uh, in in defence of Tyson's point about the ability of local governance structures to to solve tragedy of commons problems, that's actually what we find. The, the the first and only so far woman to get the Nobel Prize for economics, Eleanor Ostrom, studied this in depth. The the theory tells you when she went to these local places that there should have been a tragedy of the commons going on because the incentives were such, but the local communities had got together and actually created governance structures, ground up governance structures that had found ways to variously solve it with various levels of imperfection but nothing's perfect in life but it's uh, it was a good example of exactly what tyson was talking about yeah yeah oh, brilliant well we, we all still use wikipedia don't we and that's uh, could be seen as one one example of that but i'll hand over to lloyd now thanks so much that was uh, that was fascinating that was part one of our principle of charity conversation but join us next week for part two where lloyd meets the guests on the couch to throw them curveballs with unfiltered, hard, and personal questions. But first, a word from our partners. The Ethics Centre is an independent not-for-profit that for over 30 years has advocated for a more ethical society. Through all our work, we bring people together, create space for difficult conversations, and encourage all to live and act according to their values. Check out our website for free access to articles, podcasts, and videos that unpack the complexities of everyday life at www.ethics.org.au. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.